My name is Matt Sawada. I'm one of the pastors here at LEFC, and it is my privilege this morning to open God's Word with you. Let's pray before we, before we begin. Father, first of all, I just thank you for being God, for being sovereign over ducks, and for being sovereign over us, for being the the God of all creation who created all things. Father, we love you and are amazed at the fact that, that a God so big would love a person like me who's so small, people like us. Father, we don't deserve to be in relationship with you. We don't deserve to even worship you like we just have. So, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, and the difference a relationship with him has made in my life and in our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for these next few moments and ask that as we open your word, you'd be honored in and through all of it. Father, you deserve not just the next couple minutes of our morning, but you deserve the rest of our lives. And, Lord, we give those to you. So thank you for your son, for his sacrifice, and for the gift of your spirit that you've given us through him. Lord, we commit these next few moments to you, and we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. This morning, uh, I have the privilege of, of continuing a conversation on hitting the mark Hitting the mark. I've got some friends, these ushers, who are, are coming down right now. If you are here this morning without a Bible, will you just raise your hand? We'd love to, to gift this Bible to you. We see this as God's Word. This morning we'll be in John chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible, let me just encourage you. Take this one home and read the book of John over the next few days or weeks. Uh, it would be a, a great introduction into who God is and to what his son Jesus has done for us. And so I get to step in. I, I'm, I'm third in the batting order here. Um, not the cleanup. That's next week with Corey Mitchell. All right? And he gets to talk about living truth. He's batting fourth in this series. But, but Joel, Pastor Joel, kicked us off two weeks ago talking about how we've been commissioned. We've been commissioned to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we have not been decommissioned. We're not a mothball fleet. There needs to be an activity in, in what we've been launched to. I thought that was a beautiful image of either who we are or who we aren't. Tony, carrying the baseball theme, batting second, um, he'd appreciate that. Last week spoke on the first of four marks of a disciple and began talking, began the conversation by saying, as a disciple, we need to love God first and foremost and almost set the scene for the next three because without last week, without loving God, these next three are pretty empty. 
And so, in, in a sense, we love God by loving people. We love God by living truth. And we can love God by proclaiming Jesus. So this five or six week series is really something that I've been waiting for. I've been excited for this moment. My title on staff is the pastor of disciple making and men's ministry. And Catherine Etris and I have have been asking this question for a while. What is a, a disciple? It's one of those words that everyone within church has heard. You kind of know. But what is a disciple really? And I love where our, our staff and elders have, have kind of landed on, on eight words. We've got four handholds, four phrases. Now, that, that, so then now as the, the pastor of disciple making, my job is not to make a thousand disciples, thankfully. My job is to help us as a body look like this. My prayer is that these four phrases, these eight words, would not only define me as a disciple, but us as a church. And so this morning, I get to talk about the second mark of a disciple. What does it mean to love people? Love people. My hope this morning is that we will walk away with a better understanding of why love is so important, we would walk away um, understanding a little bit better as to why we don't love well, with a clearer picture of how to develop this kind of love and what it actually looks like in practice. My hope is that in this whole series, those two word phrases would become less of a slogan and more of a reality in who we are as, as disciples. So, just letting you guys know, that's how I'm praying for you, and that's how I'm praying for myself. Um, I would love for us to be a church that's defined this way. So this morning, as we begin this conversation on what does it mean to love people, I figured it's appropriate to just start with a test. I'm going to give you guys a test this morning. Now, some of you with test anxiety, you're like, oh, man, my hand's already shaking. Your, your palms are probably getting sweaty. What's he going to make me do? <laughs> I'm going to give you a quick quiz, five questions. And now these five questions are yes, no, true, false. All right? Pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, but there's two caveats. The first one, no cheating. All right? You can't answer a self-assessment by looking on someone else's paper, in particular into their mind, because you're going to do this internally. Uh, secondly, no elbowing. All right, husbands, what, Ron, no, none of that. Uh, you're not allowed to elbow each other, husbands and wives, friends, teenagers. 
This is an internal self-assessment. So here we go. First question. You guys ready? Yeah, good. Uh, first question. Um, do you love more people than before? In answering this question, I want you to think quantity, numbers. Could, could you honestly say that you love more people today than you did six months ago? Secondly, first one we, was kind of a quantity, quantitative question. This next one is a little different. Do you love more kinds of people than you did before? I want you to think diversity. I think our natural inclination is to love people who are like ourselves. So do you love, six months ago, are you at a place now where you're loving people who are different than you? Maybe racially. Maybe socioeconomically. Do you love more kinds of people? Uh, third question. Do you love over longer periods of time than you did before. I want you to think endurance. I want you to think of, do you, do you, does your love for people typically, can it be quantified in seconds or minutes? Maybe hours? Days? Or years? Are you quick in and out? Or are you willing, maybe is your love you know, you're willing to walk through something that's not easy to walk through for a longer period of time than you were before. So quantity, diversity, endurance. Fourth question, do you, do you find yourself responding in love quicker in certain situations than you did before? Your response. And do you take time to really think through the ins and outs and, man, well, if I do this, then it's going to be that way. If I do this and that's, and then four days later, you finally respond. Or do you find yourself willing to step in regardless of the cost? Fifth question. Does your love seem to be louder than before? Now, by louder, I don't mean like, I love you! <laughs> right. Hey, you're welcome. Now you're awake. But is it obvious? You know, now certain people who, who maybe that I have intentionally loved the question is, do they know it? You know, there, there are people that we come across within our sphere of influence, our oikos, maybe in our neighborhood. They're like, man, I loved them today. Have you ever wondered if they know it too? <laughs> Would they say that your actions were loving? 
Was it obvious? Was it bold? Was it loud? Told you, it was an easy quiz, right? Five questions. And I would like to encourage you that nobody in this room probably batted a thousand. You might have said yes to all five. And if that's the case, I mean, praise the Lord. But I can guarantee you there are, there are instances that you thought of in the midst of each question that fell short. You see, the reality is, is that we were loved this way. Look at Christ, loved diversely. Talk about endurance. He endured the cross for you. Talk about bold. Think of the splash that, that Christ and his love has made for generations. Willing? He is the, the picture of willing self-sacrifice. The reality is, is that this kind of love is urgently needed. A bold, a willing, enduring, broadly diverse kind of love is urgently needed. It's needed within these walls. There's probably 500 people sitting in this room right now who need to experience love this way. And we are commanded to love one another. And by we, that's not saying a pastoral leadership team. Praise the Lord. By we, that means you have been commanded to love one another this way. This is a body. This is a family. And this kind of love is needed within these walls. And even more importantly are those people who are outside these walls. This kind of love is desperately needed. Because unfortunately, the opinion of the church, big C, American, even international church, often rests not on the message of Christ, but on the way Christians love. And we, as a big C American church, don't always do that well, unfortunately. We're often known not as loving, but as negative haters who consider themselves better than others. And guys, that is not the message of the gospel. That's not it. Second Peter chapter one, one of my absolute favorite texts, says that we have everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ and his very great and precious promises. Through Christ, his spirit, and this word, you have everything you need for life and godliness. We can't grow love like we can that tomato plant in your backyard, right? Water, the right dirt, the right sunshine, it's going to produce tomatoes. 
That's not something we can dig deep and just buckle our bootstraps and do better. We need to rely on what he's provided for us to develop this kind of love. And that's why love is so important. Because the message of the gospel hinges on how we love people. And if we're not willing to let that message change the way we love, why are they ever going to want to know the person of Jesus Christ? So this love is important. And if you'll turn with me to John 13. We will unpack that a little bit. So in John 13, let me paint the picture um, of what's happening. Jesus is sitting at a table with his disciples. I'm assuming it's a table. Uh, They have had a meal together. Uh, This is what is commonly known as the Last Supper. He's basically offered them their first communion. This is one of the opportunities Jesus then takes in the book of John. It's a little different. It's fleshed out a little bit more than other accounts and other gospels. Jesus takes the opportunity to wash their feet. And so he explains to them what the, the body and what the blood means a little bit. He then models what self-sacrificing love looks like. He became a servant and loves his disciples. Peter has an issue with that. Peter's got issues. And one of his issues is, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Shortly after he washes their feet, Jesus predicts the betrayal of Judas. And basically, calls Judas out. You see Judas leave the room. And when he was gone, Jesus speaks. This takes chapters in the book of John. But he speaks pretty pointedly to his disciples. So in John chapter 13, let's start in verse um, 33. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer, and you will look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So you notice in those two verses, verses 34 and 35, Jesus repeats himself three times. Three times. Now, when you're doing Bible study, it's really important. One of the things to look for is repeated words or repeated concepts. What's repeated is often what's important. And so in this text, there are three words that are repeated three times. What are those words? Excellent. Say it again louder. Great. Thank you for that. Love, one. 
another. Let me, let me read it for you again. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Three times. In these two verses, we see Jesus give a new command. We see him set a new standard. And we see him paint a new outcome. You see, in Leviticus chapter 19, God gives Moses a list of commands. He gives him a list. And there's a, there are a whole bunch of do nots. And there's only one do. Let me just read. I'm going to fly through them, just focusing on the, the do nots. We're in Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. Do not reap to the very edges of your field. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Do not go about spreading slander. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So he gives them a command to love their neighbor as themselves in Leviticus 19. And if you think about all the other commands that he's given in the Old Testament, this Mosaic law, this Old Covenant, the majority of those commands are really helping them define what it means to love God and to love people. If you look at those commands, he's really setting a, a parameter as to what not to do, what would not be loving. You don't do this, 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 but do this. So he's really defying the, the playing field, defining the, the playing field for his people. And so in some ways, it's like Jesus, John 13, 34, a new command I give you? Love one another? That's not very different than all of the commands that he's given throughout Scripture. The difference in this command is that there's a new standard. He says in Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. In this text, in John 13, he's saying, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a different standard. Old Testament, I'm supposed to love you like I love myself. New Testament standard, I'm supposed to love you like Christ has loved me. It's a little different. <laughs> in, the, in the New Testament, now this is hinging on Jesus Christ and his love for us. We see not only that this is a new command or a new standard, but there's a new outcome. 
This third phrase in verse 35 says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's a significant qualifier. This outcome is that others should see it. By this, everyone will know whose disciple you are. He's not saying, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you have a fish on the back of your car. Or it's not by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you're wearing the new Walk in Love t-shirt. Sorry, some of you guys are like, man. Or it's not a by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you play WJTL way too loud. Please don't. (laughs) No. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if... You love one another. Your love is the proof of whose you are. Your actions matter significantly. I think that love is the one characteristic that Satan cannot counterfeit. He can't love. That makes us as his disciples different. A culture can't explain this kind of love. Um, a, A picture of what... A picture of love in a way that, that Robin, my wife, and I experienced this a couple years ago. We were uh, in Texas for seven years, and maybe two years into our time there, long story, we both lost jobs for various reasons. And uh, we had been serving in youth ministry. Um, we were both at, on staff at a, at a school there, and God just kind of said, it's time for you to step out of this position. Longer story. Um, I was at a seventh grade basketball game one night and had a, a friend come up to me and gave me an envelope. And in that envelope was, um, was a check. And he basically said, I want you to go home. I want you to open this envelope with your bride, Robin. So, sweet, thank you. I will. Um, we open it up. And that more than covered our mortgage for that month. Um, a couple days later, we, we got home from something, and there were gift cards on our doorstep that covered our groceries for the next few weeks. We had a, a dear friend, um, one of Robin's best friends. Her, her husband was a realtor in the area. And after all this happened, he said, he Matt, will you, will you let me know what your expenses are? All of all your expenses for the month, your bills, the things that you have to pay. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You really want to know this? He said, yeah, please. We cut a check. And he met those for three months. 
And even more than that, he gave me a job as his secretary. Now that's love. <laughs> right? If you, if you know my administrative skills and he let me be his secretary, significant. <laughs> Culture can't explain that kind of love. There's no tax deduction. There was no prize for these people. It was just significant. And that love changed me. That love changed Robin. I have a, a good friend. He's a pastor in Atlanta. His name's Dahati Lewis. And he says, I think I might have shared this quote before, but authenticity is this generation's most powerful apologetic. And I would, I would add to that in the context of this text that loving authentically is today's most powerful apologetic. It's not just about being real, but it's allowing others to see Christ in the way you love them. It's significant. So love is this important. Love has the potential to change a life. So why don't we do it? What is keeping us from developing this kind of love for people? You know, even though John 13, 34, and 35 and other places in Scripture commands this love, we find those commands hard to obey. In reality, most of us only love when it's convenient. I want to love people who are going to love me back. I want, to, I want to love people when they're like me. I think that what, what keeps us from developing this kind of love, I'm going to give you three, three things here. We could talk for the next 10 weeks on this. First thing is selfishness. We have a hard time loving other people because we're selfish. When I'm not loving God, it's really hard for me to love other people. Because when I substitute out that love God piece and I start worshiping myself rather than him, the last thing I want to do is meet someone else's needs. And so we are selfish individuals and daily need to struggle with this reality. Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks to this very plainly. And he tells us in verse 5, we'll work backwards, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. And if we have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, verses 3 and 4 naturally fall into place. tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value, what a great word, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Guys, I have this verse memorized. 
and I quote it to myself probably more often than any other verse in Scripture. Because this naturally, or this blatantly confronts Matt's nature. Secondly, I think we don't love well because we're afraid. I think there's a fear in us. We are afraid of the cost. For Matt, I'm I'm afraid that if I step out and I love someone, what if I do it the wrong way? What if, I, what if I actually hurt the relationship rather than help it? Or maybe I'm afraid that if I step out into an opportunity to, to just come alongside someone and love them, what if, what if they don't love me back? It's often easier to not do anything than to step out and to love. 1 John chapter 4 speaks to this. He tells us that this is how, verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. I love this. I love it. it. But perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And you see, when I allow fear to cripple the way that I love people, I'm worried about the punishment that I might receive from them. The judgment, the ridicule, the rebuke. I I pray this over my kids all the time when they're afraid. That they would see Christ in his perfect love rather than the fear that is consuming them in the moment. I pray that over you. So selfishness keeps us from loving. Fear, we are afraid, which is also a selfishness thing. And then thirdly, there's a cost to love, isn't there? Those people who loved Matt and Robin back in Texas, there was a cost to their checking account. A significant one. And oftentimes, loving people is uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It often costs me something. It could mean my family time at dinner. I've included someone else in our meal. It could mean sleep. Oftentimes, sleep doesn't hold to my, love doesn't hold to my sleep schedule. (laughs) And it's a 2 a.m. visit to a hospital. Or maybe, maybe it means getting dirty and helping with yard work when you've already cleaned yourself up to go out or to do something. C.S. Lewis says this in The Four Loves. He says, to love is to be vulnerable Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. 
wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid entanglements and lock it up in a safe, in in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, in that safe, dark, motionless, airless casket, your heart will change. It will not be broken. You will have achieved that. Instead, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Do you want that kind of heart? I certainly don't. So then the next question, naturally, this is why we haven't done it, why it's important, why we haven't done it. How do I develop this kind of love? Well, I would say growing in love and the way we love people is directly related to loving God. We can't separate the two. And it begins with new life in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ and it is And I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. 2 Corinthians, I am a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's in that new life that I believe the ability to love people is birthed. And it's because of that new life in Christ that we receive his Holy Spirit. It's gifted to us, and it guides us as we relate to others. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that we need to walk in this spirit, that it's a a journey that we are embarking on day after day, step after step with the spirit. I think that this kind of love is fueled by the Spirit, and we need to depend on it. Lastly, to love this way, we need to realize the extent to which we have been loved. So what does it look like? Galatians 5 gives us a whole list of fruits, and he says it is love, it is joy, peace, and patience. It is kindness. It is gentleness. It is goodness. It is self-control. I missed faithfulness, sorry. You notice that the first fruit is love and the rest of these fruits are almost descriptives of love. You love joyfully. You love patiently. You love gently or kindly. Let's be a church who loves people with this kind of love. Let's be a church who prays for people. I think there's no greater love than this. Let's listen to people. How many times have you been in a conversation with someone and you're really not listening to what they're saying, you're thinking of what you're going to say next? You're just a talking head. That's not love. It's serving them. Love is not being a doormat. We often do then need to speak truth to people. 
But I would encourage you to speak that truth after you have prayed for and listened and served them. Don't start there. It's number four on a list for a reason. This love looks like Romans 12.10 where he tells us to honor one another. Romans 15 tells us to accept and to value one another. This type of love looks like forgiving one another. You're probably sitting there saying, well, Matt, you don't know who's in my oikos. Matt, you you don't know who my neighbor is. I've got the hard-to-love neighbor. <laughs> Matt, you don't, you don't know who my friends are. Or maybe it's, Matt, you don't know who my spouse is. I do understand that. Because I'm that person. I'm just as hard to love as the next person. And so are you. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still disgusting, hard to love, and ungodly sinners, Christ died for you. And it's in that moment that, that we... We need, to, we need to realize the fact that we're no different than them. So let's step off that pedestal and even the playing field. And let's love like we've been loved. Let's be a church defined by the way we love people. Let's be a church defined by the way we love people in our oikos, Let's be a church defined by the way we love hard people, hard to love people. Let's be a church defined by the way we love easy to love people. Let's be a church defined by the way we love not only because we love God, but because he's loved us first. Let's be a church defined by the way we love people because Jesus loved us that way. Let's be a church defined by the way we boldly and willingly endure the cost, loving in a broadly diverse manner. LAFC, let's be a church defined by the way we love people. You know, Jesus loved us. He loved us compassionately, perfectly, completely, and selflessly. And that is an amazing love. And for that, we need to be grateful. Well, this morning, we have an opportunity to celebrate a love feast. We have an opportunity to take communion. And this love feast is a a reminder of Christ's love for us. It's a reminder of his sacrificial love when we were ugly and ungodly sinners. This communion is is a beautiful picture 
of what Christ has done for us on the cross and allows us an opportunity to examine ourselves, exposing the darkness of sin that's present in us to the light of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, those of you who have identified with Christ, those of you who've received this love, I would encourage you to to ponder the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. To take these few moments and examine, examine your heart. Now there are those of you in this room who have not experienced that love yet. And I would ask that you would pass the plate, pass the bowl, pass the cups, and take these few moments to really just chew on who this person of Jesus is, who he was, and what this love really means. Afterwards, there'll be people under the tomb and under the cross who would love to just answer these questions. Ask them really good ones. Don't miss this opportunity. We're going to take about 30 seconds of silence. And as you sit in his presence, I would encourage you, as I mentioned earlier, to just ponder that that beauty. Think of the sacrifice that Christ has made for you, for us. And after about 30 seconds, I'm going to give our our servers here these, these bowls. They're going to bring you the bread, and the worship team will at that point begin. Once you receive your bread, please wait, and we will partake of it together. This bread is a reminder of the new identity that we now have in Jesus Christ. This piece of bread is a reminder that years ago, days ago, weeks ago, when you accepted Christ, you agreed to stop worshiping the things of this world. You agreed in that moment, you desired to worship him fully. Desired to worship him who is now seated at the right hand of God. Not all these random things. And in that moment, you allowed him to reside in your heart. Because of this this heart change, we now have the resources of Christ allowing us to live this new life. It's an amazing sacrifice. It's an amazing grace. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, it's through the shed blood of Christ on the cross that God has provided redemption through sin. We've been bought back. We've been set free. Amen. And through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, his blood now covers you and me. 
And when God looks at us, he doesn't see Matt's junk. He sees Christ's perfection. His death on the cross has satisfied the debt that I owed, that you owed. And so Paul, again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, all we have is Christ. Hallelujah. And Father, I just thank you for the love that you displayed to us. And it's by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That we ought to lay down our lives for those around us. Father, thank you for your son and for the cross. We love you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to leave you with a couple verses from Colossians chapter 3. Paul's writing to this church and says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If, you have, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So church, today as we, as we head out, when in doubt, love. When in doubt, clothe yourselves and remind yourself of what Christ has done for you and put on love today. We love you guys. I hope you have a great day.